Welcome to From the Heart with Daniel Groom and Dawn Lister, she, her. Dawn and Daniel together run a yoga studio in Leon C called Anahata, the Heart of Therapies. And we are based in Essex in the UK. Today, we are very excited to welcome Jess Glennie. Jess is a movement teacher and facilitator and therapist. They are also the author of Yoga Teacher Mentor and Hypermobility on the Yoga Mat. Welcome, Jess. We're really excited to speak to you. Great, thank you. So let's check in how we are. How are things with you today, Daniel? I am well, thank you, Dawn. Um, my pronouns are he, him. Um, I've just been for a really nice bike ride along the seafront and kind of did that thing where I was thinking, oh, I was, I was, I was cycling down the seafront. Oh, this is so nice. Such a lovely, such a lovely way to spend an hour. And then I turned around and it was like a false 10 gal was blowing in my face. <laughs> and I was like, I've got to cycle all the way back. And I feel absolutely exhausted now. <laughs> no, I'm a bit hot and sweaty. So, <laughs> so yeah, that's 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 been a way that I've just been burning off some burning off some energy for an hour. <laughs> How are you doing today, Dawn? Yeah, I'm okay. I've had a, I had a blooming stressful morning. You know, when you, I had, I thought I had a nice free morning and actually I've spent it on the phone to council, electric companies, answering emails, getting ready for my other business to reopen because we reopen in a week or so properly. So setting in place all our, our um, terms and conditions for COVID and everything else. And I'm hopeless, as we know, anything administrative. So I feel like I need to do a yoga nidra. That's my plan for after this. I'm going to do a yoga nidra for half an hour before I go back to doing some teaching. But I've just picked up a book I'm going to share with you guys. I'm really excited to read it. It's by an author called, and I apologize, author, if I get your pronunciation wrong. It's Reshma Menachem. And the book is called My Grandmother's Hands. It's a New York Times bestseller, which I didn't know until I read that just for this second. It's called, it's about racialized trauma and the pathway to mending our hearts and bodies. And I saw it on um, an Instagram feed. What's that that Instagram feed we both like? Um, Daniel, Carly Rebel Tribe. Is that how you say it? Oh, Kelly. Kelly, Kelly Re Rebel Tribe. Yeah. 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 Really recommend that um, particular feed for anybody who is interested in um, progressive practices actually um, and the book just re she really recommends it and so it jumped right out to me and I thought I'm going to get it um, so yeah it's, I've got a new book and I'm always super excited when I've got a new book to read so I'm rushing through the last book which is Matthew Rubinsky's one on cult can't remember the title menopause brain what's Jess you know the title <laughs> Practice all is coming. No, wait a minute. All is coming. That's it. Brilliant book. Very difficult to read. A brilliant book. And I'm thinking after I've read My Grandmother's Hands and that one together, I'm going to have to read Nagatha Christie or something, but more lighthearted because it's all a bit heavy. But yeah, no, apart from this morning being deeply stressful and frustrating, I'm, I'm fine. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So Jess, how are things with you? Okay, so... Uh... Jess, I'm she, her, or they, them. Uh, that's kind of like the killer autistic question. So I'm autistic. And um, so autistic people, we tend to go for 
the subcategories of the subcategories, right? So rather than um, a bird, we think about a crow or a sparrow or a something like really specific. So this like, how are you question to me is so big mm-hmm. that I have no handhold on it. So yeah, how am I? I don't know. I'm here. I'm okay. And uh, yeah, I think that's how it is for me right now. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to be having this conversation with you. Thank you. That's, that's a, a helpful insight. I didn't know that. So I've learned something already in our few minutes together. So thank you for sharing that. So Daniel, do you want to kick us off with, I know that um, we were talking to Jess about hypermobility and so on. Do you want to kick us off with our mm, conversation? Yeah, so I suppose it's a good point to kick off with, you know, what got you into yoga primarily, Jess, and then your kind of onward journey to becoming a yoga therapist, because I know that's quite an enriched journey that you've had through various different modalities <laughs> so it would be really interesting to to hear your story about about what got you into yoga yeah um what got me into yoga well I've been practicing yoga for 40 years it'll be 40 years this autumn and um I guess what got me into it it's hard to know where to start really um what got me into it, which I didn't know at the time, was a really deep uh, need to be embodied. And so I think that, you know, in common with a lot of hypermobile people, many of us, because we have proprioceptive differences from uh non-hypermobile people. So I call, I refer to non-hypermobile people as uh, connective tissue typical people or CT typical people. So they're people who have normal connective tissue, which we, we don't, hypermobile people don't. Um, and so hypermobile people have a physiologically based difference in proprioception, which means that we don't proprioceptive very well. So proprioception is being able to know where you are in space like where your body parts are in relation to each other uh, which part of your body is moving where your body ends things like that so um, in common with a lot of hypermobile people I didn't have very much sense of being in a body or having a body boundary or um yeah having a secure body boundary uh so i guess that was what um drew me towards movement practices of different kinds and uh, i started doing yoga specifically because um i went to university and there was a yoga class in students union and my yangar yoga class every week so i started doing that class and I think it was a fairly um, untypical Iyengar class in terms of the style of teaching. And the teacher was a little bit eccentric and um, there wasn't some of the stuff that I associate with traditional Iyengar with, you know, loads of very specific anatomical 
detail um, and quite a dogmatic teaching style. So it wasn't really like that. And so I did that class for three years that I was at university. And that was sort of how, how I began uh, practicing yoga. Um, and then I guess uh, from then, from, you know, I left university, I was 21 and moved, moved away from there. That was in Reading, I moved to London. Didn't really find uh, another yoga teacher particularly. I did yoga here and there and uh, didn't really settle with any particular teacher. Um, and mostly I was dancing between then and I suppose being about uh, in my early 30s, kind of before my son was born. It was mostly dancing. Um, I'm doing a bit of yoga here and there. And uh, I didn't really get into yoga as like, this is something I absolutely love and really um, yeah, really is something that's deeply meaningful for me until I found the Ashtanga practice, which was much later. So that was in about 2001, I think, I found the Ashtanga practice. And what was it about Ashtanga that really connected with you, Jess? Well, I think up until that point, um, I had not found yoga very challenging. Um, partly because the yoga, you know, this is way before, you know, when I started practicing yoga, it was 1981. So what people thought of as yoga was more like the, you know, the village hall and, and mostly middle-aged ladies in, in leotards. That was sort of like the typical profile. And it wasn't particularly physically challenging. And I think there was a potential physical challenge for me in terms of strength, but nobody was really teaching that. It was kind of like a stretching practice that I encountered and I could do all those things like really easily because I'm hypermobile. Um, so I think that Ashtanga really, the first thing that attracted me to it was like, oh yeah, this is actually challenging. I'd been doing ballet in the meantime, so I was pretty physically fit and used to doing things that were challenging. And also that it moved, that it flowed through, it didn't stop, so it was dance-like. I mean, I kind of consider myself to be a dancer in some ways first, really. Um, uh, the breath, the banda, you know, I find the banda very containing for my body um, and that it's always the same every time so for me like as an autistic person having that repetition was really great um, it was a framework in which there are not too many surprises and yet you know anybody who does an ashtanga practice knows that it's different every time you come to your mat even though you're going through the same series of movements pretty much it's always always different um, yeah, so that was 2001, I started doing Ashtanga, and then I think in that year also, so I'm trained as a Phoenix Rising yoga therapist, and I actually trained as that before I trained as a yoga teacher. Phoenix Rising is a little bit different from other forms of yoga therapy because we work with emotional and psychological um, 
issues through the body and it's a little bit more more aligned to psychotherapeutic approaches so we work with person-centered techniques and people who come to train as a phoenix rising yoga therapist at least then i think it's still the same now might have a background mostly in yoga but they might also have a background in psychological therapy and a yoga practice of their own um so it's not the kind of model where you train as a yoga teacher and then it's like a personal development to go and become a yoga therapist it's a different kind of model from that mm -hmm. but i did train as a yoga teacher pretty well at train i've never really trained as a yoga teacher but i did some adjustment training pretty soon after that and then started teaching because somebody asked me to um so yeah and i guess i was drawn into training in phoenix rising because i'm very interested in the emotional and psychological aspects of yoga mm -hmm. the internal experience of it so that's kind of how i ended up there um hard to summarize such a long period of time in a few minutes <laughs> that's sort of sort of what it what it was yeah absolutely i i really resonate with you know what you what you said around the ashtanga practice and that the, the, the knowing of the repetition, knowing what's coming next, there's something that feels very safe mm. within that. And, and I, I, I practiced Ashtanga for, I think, probably about 10 years. And I was, I was quite heavily struggling with various forms of addiction through that period. And actually, for me, it was a real safe haven to go to where actually I felt there was, I didn't need to, I didn't need to have to think beyond what was going on on the mat in that moment, because when I did invariably, I'd spiral out of control and get very anxious or very, very stressed. So I really understand that kind of, you know, that, that, that knowing, and also knowing that someone else is holding the space there with you. And I found particularly my saw was such a, such a transformative practice for me at the time because it it gave you enough space to be able to explore on your own but then also you knew there was someone there that could guide you or support you or help you um, and I think that's completely unique isn't it in terms of I think so. And I, I feel like I, I wish there was, you know, I wish that that model of, of holding a yoga class was, was in more, you know, in more different styles of yoga, because mm. I feel that it is such a powerful way of teaching and learning. And for a teacher, it's so, uh, you know, like there's so, so, so much more that I can offer in a Mysore space than I can offer in a lead class. Mm -hmm. I mean, over the pandemic time, I've been teaching lead yoga, lead ashtanga. But, you know, compared to what I can offer people in terms of the holding and the relationship and the individual work on a biomechanical level, but also on an emotional level and just a relationship level in a Mysore space, there's so much more there so i really wish that that model would would become you know adopted in other types of yoga i just i i, I really agree with you um jess i feel um i've had that, those thoughts myself i've not 
I didn't practice Ashtanga for years. I did about a year learning the primary series and I have quite a lot of hypermobility, but always was the wrong shape. My bum was too big to do any of the jumping through or anything like that. I've really struggled. And I, I kind of used to get teased a little bit and I'm quite patronized actually. So I stopped doing it and it was fine because I didn't want to do it anyway. I just wanted to do the practice, but I enjoyed the Mysore style. And I, I did think at times, and I've tried to, in some of my classes, kind of offer a similar kind of structure. And it's not maybe because I didn't, ha I didn't have the content nailed down properly. I, it's not something I've, I've really developed, but I think it's a great idea. But for our listeners, I was just wondering if you guys could maybe talk a little bit, because not everybody might know what Ashtanga means in relation to other forms of yoga, and, and also what Mysore means. So perhaps, Jess, you could explain that a little bit for those who maybe yeah. don't know. Yeah, yeah. So Ashtanga, uh, Ashtanga Vinyasa, to give it its, its full name, because that's a little bit different, really, from just Ashtanga Yoga. So Ashtanga Vinyasa is a form of yoga that was developed in Mysore by Patabi Joyce, who has since been um, denounced, like most other yoga gurus that we know of, as um, abusive in several different ways. But he was the progenitor of this type of yoga. And so, I mean, I, I guess Ashtanga is often considered to be the most physically challenging type of yoga. And uh, it's a set series of postures, or actually there are four different series of postures. And so as a practitioner, you flow through the series. There aren't any breaks in it. You don't kind of stop and have a teacher say, you know, well, now we're going to do this posture. It's always the same sequence that you flow through. Um, and the traditional way in which um, Ashtanga has been taught is Mysore style. So what happens in Mysore style is you come along to the practice as a teacher in the room. There might be some assistant teachers as well. And uh, if you've never done Ashtanga before, the teacher would probably teach you a sun salutation, let's say, which is the first thing that you do in an Ashtanga practice. And then they might spend, you know, quite a bit of time teaching you that sun salutation and then you practice that sun salutation and then they come back and they might give you some more you know guidance and then you practice it a bit more and then perhaps that you add a B sun salutation so you might continue doing that just that sequence for a few weeks until the teacher says okay you've got that now so now let's add the next posture and you gradually will build your series up in that way so it's a very you know if it's done well it's a very sound foundation for the practitioner because it means that you're required to really um, embody like the biomechanical and energetic um, nature of each of each posture before you're moving on to the next one. That's kind of the theory of it. Now you can also learn Ashtanga in a lead class, which would look more like the conventional. Um, kind of yoga class what people mostly expect when they go to a yoga class where the teacher will stand up at the front and they'll talk you through the sequence so you can also learn it like that but the kind of ashtanga that I'm talking about um, and that Daniel's talking about is is the Mysore style where you where you would be in the room and you would have an individual kind of um, relationship with the teacher so yeah that's kind of what it is Thank you for explaining that, Jess. Um, 
it might be really useful as well for us to just explore a little bit more around what actually hypermobility is because people that have it <laughs> know about it mostly <laughs> people that don't have it might not have ever heard of those words before um and it is uh, you know i think what's so so important about the work that you've done and the book that you have written is hypermobility you can guarantee there will be hypermobile people if you are running a lead right. class. <laughs> so, you know, as much as, as much as it might not affect the yoga teacher who's running the class, you can guarantee there will be hypermobile people within that class. And actually it might be really useful to explain what hypermobility is. And then I suppose what led you into writing the book and exploring you know going down the avenues that you have to to explore and, and really make public you know make people really aware of hypermobility yeah yeah okay so um hypermobility so let's genetic joint hypermobility let's call it that um is a genetic difference in the connective tissue so connective tissue is one of the big building blocks of the body and it occurs everywhere. So it's a, a builder in our musculoskeletal system, so our muscles and, and uh, joints. But it also occurs in all the other systems of the body as well. So it's not just about um, the sort of musculoskeletal system, it's about all the systems in the body. And when somebody has genetic joint hypermobility, there is a genetic difference in um, one of the genes that forms collagen, which is the part of connective tissue that is intended to stabilize it. So this is a component of connective tissue that is meant to be very stable, but in, in uh, a hypermobile body, it's too elastic. Um, so depending on which type of hypermobility we're talking about, um, most of uh, the hypermobility that teachers will come across, it's going to be a difference in the collagen. There's also a syndrome called Marfan syndrome in which the difference is in fibrillin, which is another bit of connective tissue. But in terms of what that looks like in the person's movement, it's going to be pretty um, similar. Um, so yeah, that's what that's what joint hypermobility is. And it affects the person in a lot of different ways. So that person may look very bendy in your class, but they may also look quite stiff. So it's very common for uh, a hypermobile person to have extremely tight muscles that have gone into spasm in order to try to support their joints. Mm -hmm. So some hypermobile people may look very stiff, um, I think one of the things that is quite uh, characteristic of hypermobile people in general is that we tend to look a bit floppy and have trouble holding ourselves up. Um, yeah, so, and then to answer the other part of your question, I became involved in teaching hypermobile people because I have hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos, which is one of the forms of hypermobility syndrome. And um, I guess I've known 
I mean, I don't know when I realised that I, I, I guess I've always known that I was more flexible than the norm. Um, you know, when I started doing yoga, I mean, this has been a repeated experience for me, but I remember maybe the second yoga class I ever did, like the teacher um, inviting people to sit down in Virasana, which is the posture where you sit your, your sit bones down between your heels. And so I sat down in Virasana and then I, I saw that there were a lot of people who couldn't sit down in what seemed to me to be like a completely normal sitting position. So I guess from, from that point, I started, I mean, initially I thought everybody else was kind of weird because why could they not do this? It's just like a normal thing. Um, and then gradually I realized that it was me who was in the minority. Um, and then I got actually diagnosed with head psychomobile alias diagnose in about 2000 and, I don't know, 2005 maybe. 2007 something like that and uh, I was teaching yoga and um, at that time most people you know if I went to a teacher and said I'm hypermobile most teachers would have not a clue what I was talking about they wouldn't have heard of that word they would have no idea what I was talking about they probably think that was a good thing because it would mean I can get into all these different yoga shapes and so gradually, I mean, I didn't really know much about teaching hypermobile people at that point, but at least I knew what it was. And I knew like a tiny bit more than most other teachers knew. So people started coming to me um, for help with hypermobility. And so gradually we kind of, you know, I learned through looking at them and working with my own body and yeah so gradually that sort of you know I never intended to have this as a specialism but it gradually sort of became a specialism for me um yeah and then the book was kind of an outgrowth of that I mean actually I wrote the book I've known there was a book there for a while I, I wrote both of my books because of Norman Blair actually I have to credit Norm with this so Norm said, I think at the time I had, so my other book, The Yoga Teacher Mentor, grew out of mentor groups that I was running for yoga teachers. And I had some written materials that, that would go out to teachers. So there was a different thing for every week. And I think I shared that with Norm because he was also running mentor groups for yoga teachers. And he said, oh, there's a book. In this you should write this as a book and I was like yeah I know but there's also a book in hypermobility and I'm trying to write that one based on an article that I had a short article I'd written and uh, yeah so then they both came out of that I started writing the yoga teacher mentor one and then a publisher got in touch with me and said we want we'd like a book about hypermobility and I said yeah okay, I'm going to write that one, but I'm writing this other one first. Do you want that one? And they said, yes. And then that's how the, how the books happened. Yeah, another kind of long story short. I haven't read these books yet, so they're going straight on my list. I'm going to, they'll be my next purchases. I look forward to um, to educating myself. I, I'm hypermobile myself. 
and didn't know also until a few years ago uh, after many injuries. And uh, my daughter, one of my daughters is very high on the hypermobility scale number nine. I think it's as high as it goes. So she has all the various different issues that, that go along with that. And I found that um, yoga for a long time, because I didn't know about my hypermobility, um, really aggravated me. But I loved the way it made me feel in terms of my mind, it made my mind feel good. And it made me feel my energy calmer. And once I understood uh, that I had a hypermobility and I had to work and practice in a different way, uh, the yoga really became quite transformed. Would you be happy to say a few words about if somebody is hypermobile, how that, how they can adapt their practice or what they should be looking out for or anything you would like to share with us? Yeah, I mean, obviously I've written a whole book about that. So it's quite... <laughs> Don't give too much away, a little bit, a little bit. I mean, I, I sort of boil it down to three things. I mean, I'm constantly being, you know, responding to emails in which people are saying, I'm hypermobile, what should I do? And I, I mean, I think, you know, there are three basic things. So one thing is don't do yoga every day. Um, I mean, I would, even if you're not hypermobile, I would say don't do yoga every day because I think anybody who knows even a tiny bit about movement science is aware that our body needs a wide variety of different types of movement and you know yoga even with the most adaptation to strength and, and stabilizing that we can make it's still pretty stretchy it's mostly about extensibility mm. so we definitely um, need to bring in some other types of movement so that would be my second thing so one is don't do yoga every day so for me as a rule of thumb like three times a week is probably about the max for yoga for a hypermobile person. You know, obviously we're all different. We're all individual and we need to explore what's that that's like for us as an individual person. There isn't really a rule out there that you can follow, but, you know, that's a suggestion. Yes, just to be clear, when you say yoga, you mean the asana and pranayama part of the, the physical practice I mean, yeah the physical practice yeah kind of another thing because that is often contraindicated for people with hypermobility totally so um but yeah asana not more than three times yeah um and then the other thing is that you know if you want uh longevity as a yoga practice practitioner you really need to bring in stuff from outside yoga to create strength. Mm -hmm. So things like Pilates, weights, um, body conditioning, mm -hmm. you know, all these kind of things that focus primarily on strength mm -hmm. rather than extensions and things that have a lot of small repetitions in them because we don't do small repetitions in yoga. So mm -hmm. we're fundamentally limiting our capacity to create strength, even though if you're doing a practice like Ashtanga, it, it's really requiring a lot of strength, but it's not giving us the means to actually create that in our body. So that would be the second thing. And, uh, oh God, I've forgotten what the third thing is. That's really weird. <laughs> Buy my book and then you'll know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's gonna come to me in a moment. So have I done three things? No, 
I might have to go and look at it in a minute. The third thing will come back to me in a moment. Don't worry. <laughs> so, so yeah, those those two things are really important. So not too often bring in, oh yeah, and now the third thing is when you're actually practicing yoga, you need to be working mainly for strength and stability in the practice and not for flexibility. Mm -hmm. So not hanging out in stretches, but really looking at how you can create co-engagement in your body so that all the muscles in your body are working um, to support the joints. So that would be the third thing. So that those would be the three general. Um, it's it's so interesting what you said, Jess, because thinking back to my days of Ashtanga and the fear of having a day off, <laughs> you know, that was ingrained in, in, in the teaching at that time. Yeah, well, unfortunately, and, you know, there's this hashtag yoga every damn day, which... I think it is also, you know, there's still that belief out there that the more you do yoga, the better you'll get at it. Mm. You know, if you're concerned with getting better at it mm. um, in terms of being able to do more postures and harder postures. And it's really not true. <laughs> it's really not true. No. Um, probably all you'll get is, you know, overuse injuries if you do. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Especially in the Ashtanga system where you're, not only doing yoga every day, but you're doing the same sequence of postures every day. Mm. I found that um, once I found out I had, that my recurrent injuries were caused by hypermobility, I started weight training. Yeah. And I said to Daniel, weight training is my yoga. I'm going to give up asana and just weight train. I mean, I didn't because I love asana, but it's, it feels, I feel incredible right. when I weight train. And it's really interesting. I don't know why this is the case, but in lockdown, although we have weights at home, I won't use them. It's ridiculous. And so my joints are starting to burn. I mean, literally burn. And um, the gym opens in two weeks. I'm booked in for the day it opens. I just, the difference it makes to go in and lift weight and get my, I feel upright. That's what I would say. I feel upright. I feel strong. I feel in my body in a way that I never feel when I practice yoga. Yeah. I mean, something that I've, I've learned myself from sort of having a similar experience as you Dawn from, you know, starting to lift weights and, and feeling more upright and like, Oh, I can support myself now, which I couldn't before. Mm. Um, is like how much that does turn on proprioception, like the stronger the muscles get, the better the proprioception gets. And then mm. the more, um, functional my movement patterns get and the more I feel in my body it's mm -hmm. really amazing um so yeah I've also come to really like doing weights and I found that the more that I do strength stuff then the more that my body really needs to do the flexibility stuff so then the yoga practice becomes more beneficial mm. yeah can I ask a question Jess um partly from my own inquisitive mind but also from what I've heard maybe other yoga professionals say, can you have hypermobility in certain parts of your body? Um, it, technically, not really, because if you've got a difference in the collagen in your uh, musculoskeletal system, that affects all the collagen everywhere. So, you know, you're not going to have the collagen in your shoulder being different from the collagen in your hip. Yeah. So 
so you've got hypermobility everywhere, but it may only be manifesting in certain places because mm -hmm. maybe because of the type of activities you've done or maybe because of your bone structure in that place or, uh, you know, maybe you've overworked it, maybe you've underworked it, maybe you haven't developed muscle, you know, like all these kind of other things can affect yeah. how hypermobility is playing out in your body. But the, the actual genetic difference is, is everywhere. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. Because actually, something that I, I've said in the past is, you know, I I can be, I, I my body has the potential of being hypermobile, but actually, it either is or it isn't. Because <laughs> I, I noticed, and I think actually, by hearing what you've said, and particularly around the type of practice that I was practicing, which was Ashtanga, which was six days a week I think I got very mobile very flexible through my body but I wasn't doing enough strengthening mm. I've now reversed that I do much more strengthening exercises I've took on Pilates I do hit training quite a lot and for me that's actually given me a balance back in myself where actually I do feel less flexible but actually I didn't need to be any more flexible. I needed to be stronger. <laughs> yeah. And it's really good to, you know, to, to hear that um, it's becoming more normal for, for yoga practitioners to be doing stuff. You know, yeah. That multidiscipline. Yeah. 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 And I've noticed I'm in um, a Facebook group, which is called Ashtanga home practitioners or something. It's like a huge group for people who practice Ashtanga at home and I'm noticing that, you know, if I put a comment in there, like somebody will say, oh, I've been injured, you know, what should I do, blah, blah. And I, if I say something about those three things, like there will be a lot of people who, who support that, yeah, you need to do some strength training outside your practice, don't practice every day. So it's becoming more of a, a narrative, whereas the dominant narrative used to be, no, you get on your mat every day and Ashtanga is all you need. I mean, like you, that's what I was told. Mm. You know, if you do Ashtanga, you don't need to do anything else. You just get on your mat every day. And I suppose when we practiced Ashtanga, Jess, that most of the teachers were going straight to Mysore to be taught yeah. directly from Tarby Joyce. So they were hearing that story and that was the only story that they heard. Whereas I suppose there's a new generation of teachers now who haven't had that experience. They're not going to Mysore quite so much. And also there's lots of other types of ways to stay mobile and fit that they've integrated as well. And actually, like we've experienced, it gives us a more enriching experience in our, in our bodies and right. the freedom that it gives us. And I think now, you know, we have a more accurate idea of who Patabi Choice was and mm. like how credible his teaching was and you know not to totally throw all of it out but you know we know that he was not this all-knowing guru who had the secret to everything and in many ways he was abus abusive and uh, sexually abusive and physically abusive um so I get, that makes a bit more space for people to start thinking for themselves and go like, is this really working? Or, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. I was just reflecting as you were, you were speaking that um, what I think is becoming, I hope is becoming more true is that our yoga practice is about getting us well and fit to have a full life mm -hmm. and how, how useful is 
being able to do the splits in your real life in the real day or walk around on your hands or do a handstand. I mean, it's very nice. And if you want to do that, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, go for it. Practice your handstands. And But actually, isn't it about learning what your body really needs, getting informed about that, and then caring about yourself enough to then do that, whether that be, I need to do a bit more stretching, I need to strengthen up, I need to do less, I need to be disciplined and actually do a certain amount of practice on these number of days versus having this goal that is about looking a certain shape or performing a certain posture surely that's not what the practice is ever meant to be about anyway Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah 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 i i agree with you and we've got very diverted into what does it look like and and you know what can i do can i do this handstand i mean i really love doing those difficult postures and i you know it's all good fun but yeah it shouldn't be the be all and the end all or you know and and we shouldn't be sacrificing our well-being in order to be able to do that stuff mm. um but you know hopefully things are changing a little bit now i think there is a bit of a shift back towards a more kind of um i don't know self-directed form of yoga maybe like yoga that comes from okay well what do i need or like what what's going to help me to find find my center and feel embodied and feel mm. functional in my life and mm. you know able to carry my shopping home from Sainsbury's or, or whatever mm. and, and the beauty of that actually coming out of some practices that felt very contained and quite controlled in actually what was or wasn't maybe allowed you know you spoke about Iyengar earlier you know that is another practice yeah. where you know there was so many rules right. and regulations around you know, <laughs> what you could and couldn't do you know and ashtanga being a similar you know coming from a very similar background to that in terms of it needing to be and i suppose you know we live we live we live and still do in this world of actually the image of the yoga practitioner being you know the king thing isn't it whereas actually you know if if us as educated yoga professionals now can start to voice inquiry within people around you know it may look lovely but what does it feel like what is coming up for you what's the emotional response you know how how is this supporting you how you know what you know just giving more conversation around it rather than it just being a shape right exactly and I think this is really important especially in the Mysore room you know we're having to reclaim this practice which has been very abusive in the past and you know for me it's like well rather than throw the baby out with the bathwater like how can we reclaim the baby like how can we come back to the essence of what this is and help our students to to be more in that inquiry and um like in collaboration, like for, for me, that's really important as a, as a teacher to be in collaboration with the student and in relationship with them and kind of exploring it together rather than me saying, well, this is what you should do. Mm. It is, it's, change, it's changing that the, the, the teacher to be in the person that helps facilitate that person to understand rather than the person saying this is right or this is wrong. Yeah. I was just remembering that when I first practiced um, 
there was a lot of um, people pra practicing full lotus position, you know, where so for if someone doesn't understand like feet sitting on top of their thigh tucked into the side of the hips. And I've never been able to do it. My left hip has always had an, a long-term injury from, I think from when I was a baby. So it doesn't rotate very well. And um, I was always told that it's going to really affect your pranayama practice. And I, and I would always say, but why? Like, why would that? Why can't I just cross my legs? Or why can't I kneel? And, they, and the teacher used to say, it's because it restricts your blood flow in your lower body and you're pulling the blood up into your brain. And I remember just sitting there thinking, that doesn't make sense to me. Like, I, that's not how blood vessels work, I'm sure. But, you know, I think now I hope that people are more informed and they're not afraid to ask those questions and, not, and to, to question, like, I like, I think in our practice, we need to be able to use our critical thinking skills. Like just because somebody says it doesn't mean it's true. And if there's no basis in science or in the real world, then question it. And if it's hurting your body or it doesn't feel comfortable or they aren't prepared to show you how to adapt, question the integrity of the practice. And I, I like to think that maybe as, as you said, Daniel, as, as educators and yoga practitioners that that's the information we're sharing with people is don't turn your brain off because someone's standing at the front with a certificate. Ask the questions and don't be afraid to ask the questions. And if it doesn't feel right, it really isn't right. I mean, I, I've noticed that, I mean, you know, it's probably a different conversation, but we all know that somebody can get a teaching certificate very easily. <laughs> um, and I, I think that students are often not aware of how little their teacher may know I mean their teacher may be very experienced and know loads mm -hmm. but they may not and I think that students maybe need to be educated about like what goes into a yoga teacher training and you know because students project a lot of things on to me and I've been teaching a long time and I you know I know quite a lot of things but I don't I'm not inside their body I don't know what they're experiencing mm -hmm. um and I don't know you know sometimes they ask me questions and I'm like what how how would I know the answer to that you know mm -hmm. like, I'm not a medical doctor I'm you know I don't have the means to you know do diagnostic tests on you but there is a feeling that the yoga teacher is this kind of special person who knows everything about everything mm -hmm. And sorry, Daniel, you're going to speak. Go on. No, I would just, I, I've lost, I forgot what I was going to say because you went to speak. <laughs> uh, I, I forgot to put my hand up, that's right. <laughs> Dawn and I, just uh, people that are listening, Dawn and I have this way of communicating with hands <laughs> so it doesn't just distract the um, person that is speaking, but clearly we forgot. <laughs> um, I was going to say, I think it's really important for us as people that practice yoga to be able to say i don't know mm. yeah i i haven't been qualified in there is not my remit to know that because like you said jess i think there's an awful lot of burden that's maybe put upon yoga teachers um and it's a quite a tricky thing to navigate sometimes to be able to direct someone in the right way and I think, you know, it, it, it can be very dangerous to kind of start to surmise and try to 
try to second guess what may be happening when we actually haven't got the skills or the ability to diagnose and be able to actually, you know, knowing how to refer is such a powerful thing to be able to do, I think. You know, I think also one of the great things about the MISO room to come back to that is that I, when I'm teaching that way, I have time to refer that question back to the student. So, you know, like, oh, my back hurts in this position. Am I doing it wrong? You know, well, tell me more about what you're feeling in your back. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, well, I, it's pinching here. Is there anything else about pinching? You know, so, so there can be that kind of inquiry that can maybe lead them to, you know, although I do have some knowledge and I can I can look at them and say, well, if they're doing it like that, no wonder their back hurts, but that's not always the case. And then there's some kind of process that can lead them to maybe understanding a bit more from their own inquiry. Oh, well, maybe, yeah, maybe this is why my back hurts and maybe it's physiological and maybe it isn't, maybe it's to do with something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also because of the type of yoga therapy training I have, that that's, you know, that really comes in useful there. Yeah, that, that being able to, to help someone diagnose themselves in a way or being able to at least pick up on what's happening and how it's affecting them yeah. is such a powerful tool, isn't it? Yeah. I, I was really interested to hear in your experience How can how can our industry get better at supporting people with hypermobility? Because I don't think it's something that comes up in a lot of teacher training programs. I know some very good ones that it does that I recommend people to all the time. <laughs> but actually, I know I know there's a lot of you know like with you know and not to dismiss certain teacher trainings at all, but. You know, you can literally go online and get a 200-hour teacher training program from watching a recording, you know, with with no interaction, you know. And my, my fear is that you're standing in front of a class of people or online, even worse, you can't see what's going on at all, you know, and you're teaching them a class and you've got no idea what's happening. And, you know, those people, like the hypermobile people, actually can be damaged from certain ways of teaching I mean I think I I did a little sort of straw poll among teachers when I wrote the book and it seems like it is becoming more common for there to be some input on hypermobility Um, especially since about sort of you know like really recently 2018 that kind of time there started to be a bit more awareness but I think one of the issues is that it's really difficult to work with hypermobility it's not really for the beginning teacher. And I always suggest that if possible, if you new teachers refer their hypermobile students onto somebody who's experienced and knows a bit about hypermobility, because you have to have a very good eye for movement patterns in the person. And, you know, it's not one of those things like, you know, there are certain conditions where you can learn, okay, here's a list of contraindications. So yeah. if, X, if this person has X condition, then just make sure they don't do any of these and they do these because these will help them. And you, that's not the case with hypermobility. You know, you can guarantee that one posture or one way of doing a posture, which is helping one person to have a well-functioning 
pelvis, for example, is going to be something that for another hypermobile person would be absolutely injurious. So you have to have the capacity to to work with people in detail. And, you know, I think that's just difficult if you're a new teacher and you're still trying to get to grips with, you know, all the things you have to do at the same time when you're teaching, like keeping the class going and looking at everybody and keeping mm -hmm. tabs on the time and, you know, all those things that eventually just become instinctive. But in the beginning, they're really difficult. Mm. I mean, having said that, I also am aware that, you know, the majority probably of hypermobile people are not diagnosed, mm. partly because they just don't know and their hypermobility hasn't become an issue for them and I mean then there's also an issue of getting diagnosed which is very difficult um, so it's very likely that you might be a new teacher teaching in a gym or a studio and people are coming to your class who are hypermobile so I think there is a sort of um, you know there is a need for some kind of hypermobility sort of first aid training teachers in training like you know we can't train you how to work in detail with a hypermobile person but here are you know half a dozen basic things to know like for example you know stuff like making sure they're not hanging out in their joints or um making sure that they're engaging rather than than um stretching 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 like those kind of basic things I think would, would be useful but you know again it also comes back to I mean is the the typical yoga class setting that we have now really fit for purpose you know if you're teaching in a gym and you have 40 students mm -hmm. how how are you gonna you know even if you have done that first aid thing in your training and you know six things to tell your hypermobile student how are you really gonna be able to identify them and talk to them and and you know you're just not so I think that's you know I think there are a lot of issues I think you know the, the problem of how to work with hypermobile people with challenge really points to quite a lot of stuff that's endemic in how yoga is is presented and how it's taught you know which is why I Quite often suggest that hypermobile people go to a Mysore practice, not because I think that Ashtanga is the best practice for hypermobile people, but I think that at least there, they're going to get some individual help from a teacher. And then, you know, obviously they have to be very careful which practice they go to because mm -hmm. there are places you can learn Mysore which are kind of old fashioned and not so helpful. Mm -hmm. I was, I was just thinking, you know, if you if you was to ask someone outside of the yoga world what yoga is, the first thing they would say is flexibility, yeah. <laughs> improving or increasing flexibility. Yeah. And I mean, like most people, you know, new students, if you ask them what what are you coming to this class for, they'll say oh, to stretch or to improve my flexibility. Yeah. You know, probably about 90 percent of them will say that. Mm hmm. And actually, that would probably be words that would come out of someone who is hypermobile, because, again, they may feel stiff, but also flexible in their body at the same time. Right, exactly. So a lot of hypermobile people do feel very stiff. And so they, they do want to really hang out in their joints and really kind of pull on the tight bits because that gives temporary relief. 
but the problem problem is that it's only temporary. Yeah. And what's actually needed is strengthening in those places. But yeah, that that's the the problem. But yeah, I think you know where possible, like referring hypermobile people to a more experienced teacher is, you know, if you're not that experienced teacher, is really important because the, the needs are very complex. And, you know, they're also more than biomechanical. So because hypermobility is multisystemic, that person, for example, might have digestive needs. Mm -hmm. They might have neurodifference like dyslexia, autism, ADHD, you know, all, all of those things, dyspraxia. Um, you know, they might have stuff going on in all the different systems. So as a yoga teacher, I'm obviously not going to be treating their gastro issues. But I'm going to understand that they might be there and I'm going to you know, be able to give them a context for why they might be experiencing this and how it relates to their hypermobility and you know, how they might want to get referred if they do want to get referred, like all that kind of stuff. I think um, that ultimately what we're saying really is to remind yourself one of the most important things in our practice is to do no harm. So do no harm to our students, you know, if you don't know, don't say you know and keep them safe, refer on and, and, and to empower our students to not harm themselves, you know, to find a thing, a way of looking after themselves, which in the end might not even be yoga, it might be something entirely different, it might be something they thought might be good for them and doesn't work for them at all. It's, so it's, that, it's coming from that place of I'm not going to harm, I'm going to facilitate you to know yourself better and feel empowered enough to ask questions and and make healthy choices for myself and i, I really hope that that's the way that the yoga world is is moving i ha, i have i feel optimistic i feel a little bit optimistic about it i think there's a the the problem is sometimes with you know newer teachers who are trying to build up a teaching practice and you know i want to keep students I want to you know how do I keep students I see that question quite a lot or hear it quite a lot in mentor groups and I was wondering there's like how do I keep students and maybe they're teaching for a yoga studio who wants to keep the student and then that you know that sets up quite a difficult dynamic it certainly does <laughs> there's a whole other there's a whole other podcast we can talk about that <laughs> Somebody came to one of, uh, I have a workplace restorative class and somebody came to it this week and at the end of it, she said, oh, my, um, wasn't an osteopath, chiropractor um, says I'm hypermobile and he recommended me to do yoga and he's given me these stretches, which I, you know, I, and I was a bit like, okay, he's given you stretches and he's asked you to do yoga. That's a bit unusual, <laughs> you know. Um, not to say that hypermobile people shouldn't do yoga, but that probably wouldn't be the initial referral to somebody who's um, got back pain and you know wasn't already a yoga practitioner. Mm -hmm. um, and I said to her, "Well, I think I probably would start with doing Pilates. I wouldn't start mm -hmm. with doing yoga." Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think we need to, as you say, Dawn. I think we need to be more honest with our students about what they might actually need it might not be yoga mm -hmm. at that point or it mm -hmm. might be asana anyway mm -hmm. couldn't agree more i turn people away every week i, I, I one of my regular things says i'm not your girl sorry but try this person because <laughs> you have to know your remit and apart from anything else there's nothing worse than I mean, people in your class you know that it's not working for them 
and they're going to suffer the next day and they're going to feel horrible and and they're going to feel frustrated with themselves potentially that that's awful to to try and manage all that in your class I mean, it's not conducive for anybody so I might, I'm mindful of our time and much as I would love to keep talking, I, I want to sort of round up our conversation by asking you how you take care of yourself. I always ask everybody who joins us, what's your self-care plan? Um, how do I take care of myself? That's a really interesting question. Um, so I guess... Uh, because from, from being autistic and undiagnosed and not realizing that I was autistic, um, throughout my life, there have been periods where I've burnt out like really, really significantly because I've been trying to uh, do things that are possible to do if you're a neurotypical person and are not possible if you're an autistic person. So I would say that one of my main sort of self-care practices is reminding myself, remembering that I'm autistic and, and hypermobile actually, because this also plays out on a physical level. Like I can't physically do the amount of endurance that somebody who isn't hypermobile can do. So I would say one of my most fundamental self-care things is reminding myself again and again that that is the case and that my body and my neurology are different and that I need to keep coming back to my own internal sense of what is needed and what is appropriate and what is actually serving me rather than kind of um, taking on this projected thing of, oh, well, this is what everybody can do, so I should be able to do that. Mm. And I guess over the years, that's become more and more refined um, and more subtle. And I keep finding new layers to it. Um, but yeah, I find that if I stay with that, then I'm pretty good at taking care of myself. Yeah. Thank you. That's beautiful reflection and wonderful advice for us all. So thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to pass us over to Daniel to round things up. Thank you, Dawn. Thank you, Jess, for being here. It's been, I've learned so much. I really have. And it's just, I just, it's just wonderful to be able to, to, to be able to converse with people who really have embodied and took the time to really understand something. And I feel enriched by your knowledge today so thank you for being here thank you for inviting me you're really welcome um so our next podcast we are talking to jude mills who has done an amazing amount of work all around supporting people um, with cancer using yoga and um, Jude's got a book out, which probably by the time this podcast comes out, it will probably be out. Um, but I think it comes out sort of end of April time. But um, Jude is a, a fellow um, yoga therapy teacher along with me at Yoga Campus. Um, so it's really lovely to have Jude coming on board to talk to us. And I'm just like yourself, Jess, she's someone that's completely embodied learning about how yoga can support something that 
affects many people in our in our society. Um, and yeah, we're really, really excited about chatting to Jude. Yeah, she's also a really good friend of mine. So um Oh is she? Oh how funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm sure you'll have a great conversation. Oh well, I'm really looking forward to speaking to her. So thank you so much for listening to From the Heart today. Um, if you enjoyed what we spoke about, please do leave us a review on the Apple Podcast app. If you didn't like what we talked about, please let us know because we're always looking to learn and re-educate ourselves about how we can how we can meet our listeners better. Um, you can also find us on Spotify and on the Podbean app as well. So thank you so much for listening today. Thank you, Jess, and thank you, Dawn, for being here. And um, we'll see you and hear from you soon. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.